Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks, howdy and welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This episode today, I'm calling Crutches and Training Wheels. You know, when you're trying to learn how to ride a bicycle, those training wheels will save you a few skinned knees, you know, but eventually the training wheels need to come off if you're really going to learn how to ride that thing. Same goes for crutches. If you've ever sprained an ankle or broken your leg or something like that, you've probably needed a pair of crutches to hobble around the house or back and forth, you know, to your desk at work or something. But the goal is always to try to uh, be rid of them as, as soon as you're able to. But they do help you. So these are helping devices. So I'm going to talk about various crutches and training wheels for bluegrass, uh, both you know as a student or as a participant in jams or in gigs. And so that, that's what we're going to talk about today. And of course, right on cue, the chickens, you might hear them faintly in the background, started clucking. It must be the timing because I tend to record these shows in the morning. And I think what happens is one of the hens will lay an egg. And invariably, when one of the hen lay, hens lays an egg, she announces it to the world, you know, and has to cluck for 15 minutes very loudly. And then that gets the rest of them started. And then the rooster chimes in and I can hear them. Hopefully you're not hearing them too much, but if you are, um, it's, it's just a deliberate attempt to add some traditional credibility to the soundscape of the podcast. Other people would have to pay to have chicken sounds put into their podcast, but not me. Okay, before we get started with crutches and training wheels, I want to say a big thank you to my Patreon patrons, Gina, Tom, Pat, and Lori. You guys are making it happen, and I just want to say thanks. So they went over to patreon.com slash Bradley Laird and became a patron. And I just want to tell you guys, I appreciate it. It means so much to me and it is really, really going to help things along. And I also want to thank, had a couple of, uh, grass talk radio supporters. So, you know, there are multiple options, as I've said many times, to support the show and, and try to make this thing financially feasible. And the Grass Talk Radio supporters, I haven't forgotten you. I just have to say that many times I don't know much more than your email address. Sometimes there'll be a name attached, but I do want to say thanks to these four people who have, have become Grass Talk Radio supporters which is just, you know, chip in and make a little donation. Um, within, this is looking at the last 30 days, we got Mike Estes, my old buddy Mike, the fiddle player. I always liked playing with Mike. He played uh, for many years with me in Pony Express, going all the way back to the 19, 
I think the first time he was the fiddle player in Pony Express was 1980. He played one summer of festivals with the band. And then he came back in later, um, around 80, 81, I guess it was 82. And then the band stayed in that configuration till 84. And then Mike and I would just bump into each other at festivals and stuff. And then in the, in the 90s, Pony Express got cranked back up again. And, you know, first guy I called, well, second guy. I did call Buddy first, Mike. Don't take it personally. But <laughs> anyway, called up Mike and Mike jumped right back in there. And we did, uh, gosh, I don't know, eight or ten years of Pony Express. Mike is a wonderful fiddle player. And if you've heard any of these recordings of Pony Express that I've used for intro and outro stuff, you're many times hearing Mike Estes on the fiddle and Mike chipped in as a Grass Talk Radio supporter. So thanks a bunch, Mikey. And I also want to mention um, Dave. And all I know is Dave and Jackson. It just says Jackson. So I don't know if you're actually in Jackson, but Dave stepped up to the plate and tossed some coin into the tip bucket, as did David, which could be Dave. I'm not sure if it's Dave or David in Australia. I mentioned him before. And also the mysterious J-Pin that I said, um, you know, this guy. And Well, I don't know if J-Pin is even a guy, you know, so... Forgive me, J-Pin. I just don't have a lot of information. I do kind of like the mystery of the references to this J-Pin character. I, I was telling Jackson about this. Actually, he heard the, the last podcast, and he goes, that sounds like a rapper's name, J-Pin. So, anyway, thanks, Mike, Dave, David, and J-Pin. These uh, people who have chunked a little a little spare change into the tip bucket as a grass talk radio supporter. And of course the patrons, Gina, Tom, Pat, and Lori. Thank you guys. Okay. So let's get to crutches and training wheels. And the, the, the reason I'm, I thought of this topic was a little email exchange that I had this over the past week with a guy out in, well, I don't know where he is, but I know he's not in the U.S. And his name is Sam. Sam shot me an email and said, hey, you know, I'm, I, I just bought your Jam Session Survival ebook, Mobile Edition, and I don't see the download link. So I jumped, you know, Johnny on the spot and jumped in there and said, well, uh, let me do this. Let me go over to my PayHip store and I'll resend the download email to you. And you should just be able to click on that and instantly download it. So send him off that email and then I go over to PayHip and I'm looking through the recent transactions and I just don't see it. I saw, you know, I see one from three or four days ago, but that's... That's not his email address. I don't see the transaction at all. Well, it turns out there was some sort of snafu of his bank being in a different country than wherever PayPal keeps their money. And I guess it just hadn't gone through yet. So anyway, we went back and forth a few times and I managed to get him 
the uh, jam session survival thing, which, as I've mentioned before, are the chord progressions to the, to the 100 most commonly played bluegrass jam session tunes. Very handy, uh, you know, if you're starting out and you just don't know the chords to some songs. Uh, this will, it's sort of like a little mobile cheat sheet. It's a crutch. It's training wheels. But it can be very valuable, especially if you've got it in your iPhone there and it's just right on your hip. And uh, but but I I don't mean this to be a commercial for that product. Um, but after he got it, he wrote me back. You know, thanks so much and so on. Um, and then he said something, and I want to I want to respond to his email. He asked about, and let me look at it. So he's looking at the Jam Session Survival Mobile Edition, and he asked, is there an index page? And, well, first, let me answer that. Well, let me just give you his whole thing. Is there an index page? And can you make a recommendation on where to find lyrics to these? So I answered him back with, there is no index page. So that's one of the differences between the mobile edition and the full eight and a half by 11 version, which if you look at Jam Session Survival, you can choose either one. You can go to both if you want to. They're both PDFs, but one is sort of intended for larger screens or printing out and you know physically carrying with you to a jam. That version, what I call the classic version, does have an index page at the beginning. You know, just a list of the songs and their page number, which can be very handy. On the mobile edition, because the format is so much smaller, it would have taken, you know, six, seven pages to list all the songs at a large enough typeface to actually be able to read them. So I just skipped. The index page there is no index in the mobile edition in other words there's no list of songs and page numbers at the beginning and then as i answered his e you know responded to him in email i continued this way the songs are alphabetically arranged so in ibooks it's pretty fast to just speed search you know speed scroll anywhere you want to to find it I mean, you know what i'm saying is all the tunes are alphabetical by title so angel band is going to be way at the front and sitting on top of the world is going to be you know towards the back and using that if you tap on the screen in ibooks it brings you up a little scroll bar at the bottom and you can just zoom really quickly and if you know if you find that you're on m well you got a little farther to go or you can just sit there scrolling left and right and pretty quickly find them by just scrolling now i get what he's saying he he's wondering well, okay what are the hundred tunes that are in there which as as i said before that is in the classic edition but the list of songs is just shown on the website um but anyway and it's pretty easy to, in ibooks if you're using the mobile edition to um, use the search function it when you tap and you just you can type the word blue and you're going to get you know any song that contains the word blue like it might have blue moon of kentucky might pop up but any reference to blue in the title it's going to come up 
Okay, so I answered that question. Then to his question about, what about the lyrics? And I, I wrote to him this. As for lyrics, I like the Bluegrass Fake Book by Burt Casey. And I said, you can search for it and find it as a printed book or a PDF download. And then I said, Slim Ritchie has produced a bunch of bluegrass lyric books. I used to find these all the time at bluegrass festivals. You know, there'd be that vendor there selling maybe records and strings and capos and picks and maybe a few instruments and some books and stuff. And I would see these things. I, I bought two or three different ones, or at least two, sometimes at a festival. And it was just the typed out lyrics to like, hundred songs or something just all crammed in this book obviously done on a typewriter a long time ago and i can't remember i don't even think they included the chord changes but i'm not positive of that so anyway those books are around um and also and i'm continuing continuing in my reply to him same for chris jones in other words chris jones has also made a bunch of bluegrass lyric books Google those guys and you will find them. Jones stuff is really good because it includes CDs where he sings a verse and chorus of each song. And then I said, I never got into producing lyric books because getting the publishing rights is a nightmare. And that's true. You know, I, I, uh, I know Burt Casey pretty well. He is the, the author and editor of the Bluegrass Fake Book. Um, which is, uh, you can, you can get that at, let's see, what's their website? CVLS.com. Uh, Bert and I talked about that a bunch and, and traditional tunes and public domain tunes, no problem. You know, if you're going to put the words to old Joe Clark in your book, you don't need anybody's permission. So, you know, the, the traditional stuff, it's pretty simple to publish in print form. But if you're going to take a song that was written by, well, let's just say any song that is under copyright protection, you have to get, if you want to stay legal, the, the written permission from the publisher. And Bert did that. So when, you, when you're finding a tune in his Bluegrass fake book, that's one of the reasons I recommend his book, because I know that he did this. I mean, I know he did it correctly if you look up wayfair and stranger it's traditional public domain he didn't need any permissions but if let me find one here that is an example i'm just thumbing through his book right here here we go legend of the rebel soldier um, by charlie moore and it says at the bottom of that page page 72 in the bluegrass fake book copyright zap music bmi all rights reserved used by permission so bert has a letter <laughs> he's got a probably a folder in his uh, filing cabinet with letters from these publishers and that's the way it's done legally and bert knows this so that's a good um you know authorized printed version of that song and Look, you and I know about the internet and there's tons of stuff on there that people are, you know, not exactly following the law. And, you know, you may consider that a benefit to you because you can just, you can search, you can go on Google and type lyrics and the title of a song and up they come. 
but you don't really know whether, you know, that person truly has the permission to do that. Now with chord progressions, it's different because as any bluegrasser knows, sometimes the same chord progression gets used for many, many, many different songs. It's, you know, or pretty similar. And it's been fairly established that a person cannot copyright a chord progression. So when you get in the jam session survival, it's really a list of chord progressions and the titles are just, you know, this is a song that uses those chords, this exact chord progression, you know, so many beats of G, so many beats of E minor. In other words, you could take the chord progression to Foggy Mountain Breakdown and write a completely different tune, but it would still be the same chord progression, but totally different song. So the song itself, the melody and the lyrics are copyrightable um, property. The chord progression, not really. I suppose if you wrote an extremely unique chord progression, you know, like power rock type thing, I suppose you, you could make a case that it's so original that it, you know, even the chord progression belongs to you. But uh, there are cases in the uh, bluegrass um, jam session survival guide where I tell you, I just put a footnote, by the way, these chords are exactly the same as uh, this other song. And uh, you'll find that a lot in traditional music. So anyway, I just want to mention these books. If, if you're that person who needs the crutch of some lyrics, I, I really recommend the Bluegrass Fake Book by Bert Casey. And on the show notes for today's episode, I'll put a link to where you can get it. Although I have seen them on Amazon, I think you, you get a better deal. And, and, you know, I, I pity anybody in the bluegrass publishing business. Um, they'll do better if you just purchase it directly from them. So you can go to grasstalkradio.com, slide down to this episode. I think it's number 117 crutches and training wheels. And I'll put a link on the show notes page to the bluegrass fake book. Um, one of the things some people do with the Bluegrass Fake Book, because it is what's known as a perfect bound book, that is, the pages are, it's a paperback book, and the pages are glued into the spine of it. So the book, unless you mash on it, doesn't tend to want to lay open nice and flat. Very simple to fix this. You, uh, you go down to your local little print shop in town, and you, you carry it in. And you say, hey, can you slice the spine off of this thing and then spiral bind it for me? Then they'll just open up really nice and flat. The other one that I want to mention um, are these books by Chris Jones. And Chris Jones, you'll see him over on Bluegrass Today writing a humor column. He's a guitar player. Uh, he, like most bluegrassers, he probably plays a bunch of other stuff too. Singer. Uh, has banned the night drivers. Um, anyway, he is the author of a couple of bluegrass books uh, that are full of lyrics. And I point them out because a lot of times if you're looking at a song and you already kind of know how it goes and you just need the lyrics, then something like the bluegrass fake book or one of those slim Richie lyric books is a good choice. You just can't remember like you remember the, the first verse, but you don't remember the second verse and the third verse, but you know how it goes, you know, there, all you need are the lyrics. 
But if you're fishing for new tunes and you really want to hear it, uh, Chris's books are good because he includes a CD where he sings the verse and he sings a chorus. So you got one verse and one chorus, and then the other verses are printed in the book. So he tried, you know, tried to give you an idea of how does this song actually sound? And so those can be really helpful. I have two of them that I ordered off of, um, I don't know if it's his website or it's through somebody else. Musicians Workshop is who published it. Um, but I have the Bluegrass Word Book, which is 123 songs. And then there's three CDs with it. So you get to, you know, if you, if there's a song, you know, Cabin in Caroline or bringing in the Georgia mail or bound to ride, whatever you can hear him sing it, you know, and in kind of a bluegrass style, very bluegrassy. He's a very bluegrassy guy. And that's, um, might be easier for you than to be looking at, you know, standard music notation for the melody and then trying to figure it out yourself. So, uh, that one's called the bluegrass word book. 123 songs. He's also got one called the Traditional Bluegrass Songbook, which I don't remember how many songs is in this. It has two CDs worth, so it's it's slightly fewer number of songs. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, looks like 37. 37 songs in that one. These are good. I've used them a few times um, with students, just playing them for them, you know, when, when somebody's kind of uh, hurting for material, I say, here, take one of these books, look through it, you know, pick out some songs that are interesting to you, and then we'll listen to the CD and, you know, show you how they go, that kind of thing. So I do like Chris Jones's books and also Bert's books. And, of course, those, you know, you can always Google it if you want to do that. I've found a lot of times when I'm Googling something like that, you get a lot of different versions of the same thing, you know. One person hears the words as being X, Y, Z, and the other guy hears something completely different, you know? And there are some songs that, uh, you know, it's hard to tell what the guy was singing. There's some, uh, I got a recording of, uh, well, a good example is um, that Norman Blake song, Gin Sing Sullivan. There's a part in there uh, about three miles from the Battelle Yard. And I've heard that word Battelle um, turned into a lot of other things because a lot of people didn't know what he said, you know? And I heard, um, many, many years after I had been singing the thing for years and just kind of faking my way across that word. Cause I really didn't know what it was. I heard that Norman said, it's a French word battle and it's a name. And the battle yard was a place. So it's a proper noun battle. The bat tail yard, but I've heard it bat tail and back tail and just all all sorts of stuff because sometimes hard to know what they sang. So when you go the internet route, there's no telling what you may find. Okay, I hear the chickens have really cranked up. So let me divide these crutches and training wheels topic into three categories. There are crutches for personal practice. There are crutches that are helpful at jam sessions. And there are crutches that are helpful as a band member or playing an actual gig in front of an audience. So I'm just going to kind of quickly mention some of these things. 
and throw out a few comments about them. The first thing is crutches and training wheels for practice is, you know, to get, become a better singer, become a better player of your instrument. And obviously one of the, a good written crutch is some sort of a practice plan. You know, even if it's just a list of these are the songs I'm working on and you, you know, and it reminds you, oh yeah, don't forget to play that one. You know, I used to, for many years, keep a little list of the claw hammer banjo tunes that I had worked up and cause it's really easy to get your banjo out and just start playing and you forget that, you know, oh yeah, there's this other tune that I spent a lot of time learning. And so if you have that song list, that tune list, it reminds you to periodically, once in a while at least, maybe go through and try them again, you know, and remind yourself how they go. So some sort of a practice plan or tune list is a good idea for, that's a good crutch. So you're not always just relying on memory. Obviously, jam tracks. Boy, these chickens are clucking like crazy. Hey, I'm going to have good eggs for breakfast in the morning. Um, jam tracks. Uh, drum machines, metronomes, those things keep you honest in terms of time. Those are, those are good crutches, but you obviously don't want to, you know, carry that to a jam session. You don't want to take your metronome to the jam session. So these are, these are crutches and training wheels for basically use at home or during lessons. Same goes for tablature or sheet music of what you are working on. Could be exercises but having some sort of written stuff there is a crutch and it's helpful because I, I was big on giving people things at private lessons on paper. You know, I'd work from paper. It might just be a sheet of paper that had a couple of things on it, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, they're taking their lesson on Monday, that by Wednesday, they haven't completely forgotten what it was I was showing them. So that's a cheat sheet. There's nothing wrong with that. If it helps you remember. However, well, we'll, we'll come back to paper. Um, also, uh, tape recording that, that can be or digital recording. However you want to record that could be a nice little, um, training wheel. Also another live human being. When I started out playing the banjo, I used to ask my mother who was a piano teacher, I used to ask her if she could, I would lay the banjo book up on the piano. I'd say, Mom, is there, could you come in here and play like these chords? And she'd be playing, you know, coming around the mountain or something, you know, because she, she could do that quite well, you know. And I'd say, just kind of this speed, one and two and one, and she'd play along with me. Having a live human or a teacher is a good training device and a crutch and ultimately that's all we're going to be doing anyway is playing with other people bluegrass is not a solo form of music so you know you might as well periodically work into your plan you know getting together with somebody else who is willing to play with you that's an extremely helpful thing to do okay so that's talking about you know crutches and training wheels for personal practice. And I did an episode, episode 65 on practicing alone. If you haven't heard that yet and you're interested, you know, you might want to go zero in on that episode and listen to it.
Now, when it comes to jam sessions, it's kind of, you know, there's some things you're just going to leave at home. You're going to leave your metronome at home. You might bring a tape recorder. Wouldn't be any harm in that. I wouldn't be too obvious with it because some people get a little nervous when you start whipping out a tape recorder. And the big problem with recording everything is that finding the time to go back and listen to it all. You know, I have countless gig tapes where I tape, you know, four sets at a gig and then never listen to them. I might have listened to part of the first set on the drive home or something, but I never got around to listening to them, you know. So sometimes you can record way too much, but it's nice to have that ability that if there's some song in a jam session that, you know, that keeps coming up and you don't know it, you might, you know, say, hey, uh, maybe ask a guitar player, hey, do you mind just playing me that? Just play me a verse and a chorus of that thing. Maybe even call out the chords while you're doing it. And I'll record that real quick. Then I'll be able to practice it. So there's ways to use a tape recorder that, you know, doesn't eat up all the time available for going back and listening and trying to find what you did. But, but at a jam session, having a song list, that, you know, that practice list of those tunes you're working on and, you know, you might put check marks or highlight the ones that I can actually play this one, you know, and this one I'm just working on. Bringing that along to a jam session is not necessarily a bad idea because at some point the jammers are going to look at you and say, Hey, Bob, what do you want to play? And, you know, you might not very quickly think of it. You know what? You know, let's see. I know. I know. And you're scratching your head. Well, if you had your list, you could just look down at your list and you could just pick one off your list. Well, I've been working on banjo signal lately. You want to try that? Well, sure. Okay. So it's just a memory device. It helps, you know, you think of stuff you can do. Same goes for lyrics. You could cart along the jam session survival book as a printout or on your phone or whatever, or one of these other fake books, lyric books, because you may have only been doing, I don't know, pick any, pick any bluegrass song that you sing. Let's say man of constant sorrow. Let's say you have, you have sung it a little bit, but you don't know it like the back of your hand. You know, you can't remember exactly everything. Having that book there that you can glance down at, I would say that's better than, you know, better than not having it. If you can't remember it, how else are you going to learn it? If you don't, you know, it's a crutch, but who wants to sit around and just hear one verse of a song? You know, it'd be nice if you could do the whole thing, even if you have to look down at the book when you get to verse seven or whatever. Think of some of those old murder ballads, you know, the 29 verses of Knoxville Girl or something. So they're crutches, yes, but it's a jam session. So having a few crutches around at a jam session is not a bad thing. Um, now I was talking about, you know, when you're practicing alone, having a live human or a teacher or somebody from time to time is helpful. This is true at jam sessions too. You might say having a picking buddy or a, you know, a pal or somebody there who's willing to throw you a bone once in a while and tell you what key they're in or tell you that one weird chord or help you out with the lyrics when, you know, you've sung verse one and then the chorus and then the mandolin player took a break and it's coming around to verse two and you cannot think of that second verse. 
you know it, you just can't think of it. And if your pal just leans over and goes, you know, blah, 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 the first, and tells you the first couple words, well, now you're off and running again. So having helpers, you know, somebody there, you know, I, I, I've mentioned before that I've gone to some jam sessions with students of mine, you know, like, hey, come on, we're going. And I just hang around, try to help them, you know, basically. So that can be really helpful. That's a crutch. You know, when you're a professional musician, you don't want to be up there on stage and you got this guy who just stands there behind you and whispers the chord changes in your ear or the lyrics, you know. You don't see um, the real pros doing that sort of thing. But if you think they don't have little crutches, they, they do. You, they just try to keep them very hidden. You know, I've seen Del McCurry forget the words. <laughs> and if, when I'm Del's age, I'll be forgetting the words and plenty of other stuff, too. And, you know, if the bass player leans up and, you know, whispers the lyrics, he just laughs and continues and, you know, is appreciative. So there's nothing wrong with that. We help each other out. So having a helper and a coach is a good thing. But you do see the pros are better at, you know, keeping those things hidden. Okay, so that brings us to playing actual gigs. And I've had, uh, I mean, I've played a lot of gigs over the years. And the most challenging thing is always to be a fill-in musician. How, you know, filling in, guy just needs a, needs a mantle player. Well, if, if they just need a mantle player, and I was halfway familiar with the type of music they were doing, you know, which if they're a bluegrass band, I, I, I could go and not have a clue what they were going to play and do okay. Because you have that, first of all, you have other things going on. You can hear the bass player, and you can hear the guitar player, and you can kind of follow what's going on. And the nature of a mandolin chop is such that it's not super obvious if you hit a wrong chord. There's even the, you know, the faking of a chord where you just kind of go chuck against nothing. You know, a muted chop. Uh, they're just, it's easier to get through a, a very unfamiliar gig with a bunch of unfamiliar tunes on a mandolin. It's less so on the bass or the guitar. I mean, you better know the chord changes and, and the arrangements. But even with mandolin, you've got some delay because when the bass hits the downbeat, you don't hit your chord until the offbeat. So you got a microsecond to hear what he just did and then respond to it. So on mandolin, it's pretty easy. And then the, you know, when your solo came around, you're just improvising over the, the chords that you've been playing. So that wasn't too challenging. And that's true for banjos and fiddles and dobros and any lead playing. Usually if you're a pretty decent player, you can fake your way through those and play some good stuff. But when it comes to the guitar and bass, or any kind of fancy arrangements, special treatment of the song. And, you know, well, we stop right there, you know, that kind of thing. You better know that stuff in advance. So that's the trick is to be able to do that just at one time, your call to go do a gig. I did an episode about how to fill in. You can listen to that. But that's that's a tall order and it's tough and i talk in that episode about some solutions for that and some of those are jotting a few things down 
You know, if you've got, maybe you've only got five minutes to talk to them about what you're going to play before you go out there, but they, you got any tricks, you know, anything, you guys play anything really weird that you need to tell me about before we walk out there. Um, but some of the tools that are often employed at gigs, one is the set list. That's a crutch because you don't have to have a set list, but it kind of helps people stay on track. Um, not forget things that they had intended to play, you know, and I think you get a better end product if you've thought about how one song leads to another and who's got to switch instruments and who's what the capo changes are. You know, I, I don't like this thing where, okay, we're going to play all our G tunes. Now, now I'm putting my capo on an A and let's knock out all our A tunes. <laughs> you know, that's, that's just, um, it's, expedient and helpful to the uh, banjo player who doesn't want to retune between every song, but doesn't always make for the best set. So I've talked about set list, but a set list is a crutch. Nothing wrong with having that. Um, I often see, and I'm backing up a little bit to jam sessions. I often see, especially guitar players who sing, having the big fat notebook with every song they've ever played in it, you know, Basically, it's a collection of of typed up lyric sheets, you know, pages out of the bluegrass fake, but it's just everything that they could possibly ever play. It might be 200, 300, 400 songs in this big fat notebook. And that can become a crutch. I mean, it's very helpful when somebody comes up and says, hey, can you play such and such? And you kind of know how it goes, but you don't know the lyrics. Well, you probably got it in that giant book. But... The big book, you don't see the pros playing with the big book. So I think it's perfectly cool to have that at jams and at gigs where the possibility of answering requests may come up. I don't think a person, a paid performer, should be singing songs that they don't know, you know. Even if it's been requested, and it may even be a great song, I just think that's bad practice. Better to say, no, nah, we don't do that one, you know, than to just flip open to the book. You don't even know the song. You're sort of making up the melody as you go. You've never heard it done, but you think you can fake your way through it. That isn't, that's not cutting it as a professional musician. So, you know, your book if you're going to carry a book ought to contain the things that you are capable and competent to actually perform. Don't just fill your book up with, you know, Jimmy Buffett tunes that you've never played in your life, but you know, somebody might ask for it and I have sort of heard it. So I can probably fake, you know, don't do that. You just, just fill it up with the, the things that you are competent to play and then try not to use the thing at all. Because frankly, if you're looking at the book, it just means you haven't put the time in to not be looking at the book. You can memorize this stuff. It takes some work though, and it won't happen with the book in front of you. You gotta, you gotta close the book. You're never going to get off. You're never going to learn to ride that bike. If you don't take those training wheels off and you might keep them in the garage in case you have to put them back on. There are many gigs that, that I have carried 
these fake books and stuff just for that, you know, we know this particular song. We, we could do it, but I don't really know the words to it. And to be able to like, all right, for 20 bucks, yeah, we'll do it. And you pull it out and you do know the melody and you do, you know, you're really familiar with the song. You just don't know the lyrics. That would be an okay time to pull them out. Um, at that type of gig where you're playing for tips and you're playing for requests and you know, that kind of stuff. But you know, you're doing a wedding reception or you're doing a convention show or a festival thing. That's not the time to do those things. You know, it's just going to make you look like an amateur to have that book out. I'll tell you a little, little story about the book. I became the bass player for a particular band and joined the band was, you know, auditioned and was told, dude, that's, you're it, man. You're, you're our new bass player. I'm like, cool. All right. So a couple weeks goes by and there's gigs on the calendar coming up and I'm like sending them emails. I found these emails not too long ago and I'm going to refrain from mentioning any names in this because who, who it is, is of no importance whatsoever. What is important is that this sort of thing happens a lot. So the rest of the band members had been playing together for quite a while. Maybe they didn't feel like they needed to rehearse, but when you've got a new bass player and he doesn't know any of your material and you play a lot of original tunes and you've got unique arrangements, you know, you probably ought to rehearse with the guy. Well, I was given a couple of CDs, just live recordings from gigs. Here, here's some stuff. Just listen to this and, you know, see at the gig was sort of their attitude. Well, I didn't feel like that was sufficient. So I did listen to the CDs and I, I worked night after night, day after day, going through these CDs and charting out the chord progressions, what key they do it in. Oh, they suddenly stop right here. Put me some railroad tracks there and I have this notations, you know, chording song arrangement system. So I'm writing the chords out in Roman numerals and marking what key they did it in. And there's this little walk up thing here and they stop here. I'm just trying to listen to what they've been doing and make me something so I can bring that to rehearsal. And when they say, okay, let's play, you know, blah, blah, blah. I could just turn to that page and okay, that'll refresh my memory. Now I didn't intend to use this book at the gigs. This was just my preparatory practice work trying to learn their material. They weren't doing the bluegrass standards. There was a lot of original tunes and a lot of tunes that I wasn't that familiar with, but I knew I could play them if I just figured out what they're doing. And so I did all that work and I had this book with all these, you know, a, just a single page for the song. And finally, after several emails, Hey, we, you know, we really, it'd really be helpful if we could have a rehearsal, you know, Okay, we're going to rehearse. So we get together and the book was extremely helpful because they start playing this song and that song. And I'm like flipping through my book. There it is. Okay, cool. Now let's play it. And I can find out how it really goes. So I found another email that I wrote to him. Hey, uh, you know, we have got this gig and this gig and this gig coming up and you know, be nice if we could rehearse a little bit, you know, 
And it was sort of like, eh, you know, don't worry about it, just play. Well, see, the thing about it is, you can just play and really blow it. And nothing worse than a bass player not knowing what he's doing. He can be a great player, but if he doesn't know that it goes from G to E flat, that's just not one of those chord progressions you just encounter all the time. If you're going to do weird stuff, be nice if you clued the guy in, you know, yeah, maybe he'll get it by the second time around in the third repetition, but is that what you, do you want your bass player to sound like that? Well, if you don't rehearse and you don't give him any information, and what happened here is the, the first gig came around and I had, you know, my 30 songs that I had worked up these charts to, and then we show up at the gig they played maybe 10 of those songs and 20 other ones that they never told me about. <laughs> and luckily, some of them I knew. I knew Orange Blossom Special. Okay, fine. I know that. You know, there was stuff they did that I knew because I'd been playing a long time. But there were other things they played that I'm hearing it for the very first time at the gig, plugged in on a PA. You know, that's just not cool. <laughs> so, anyway... The book saved me a few times, and uh, but here's, here's what we want to say about the book. The leader of the band several times told me, dude, why do you carry that book around? Just play. You'll get it. Just play. Well, and I would say, well, I don't really know that tune that well, and if I have this book, I can, you know, I can look at it, and I, I won't make as many mistakes. I, just, I don't know why you use a book. Well, it's easy for that person to say because he don't need a book. So anyway, we played a few gigs and, you know, not high pressure gigs. And we eventually had this sort of big gig coming up, you know, pretty major performance. And so by that time, I was still carting the book around, but I wasn't looking at many of the tunes I was getting down well enough that I didn't even turn the page to the book. So we're there, and uh, up comes one of the tunes that we've been doing, and I didn't even open the book. I, by then, I had it down. And by the way, since I was playing upright bass, I would position the book on a music stand behind my bass and down kind of waist high so that from the audience's perspective, unless they were really looking, and why would they be looking at me, the bass player, just standing back there? I wasn't singing at all in this band, just playing bass. I'm just, you know, kind of in the back line that you'd have to really be looking to even notice that I had the book. But I did have it there just in case they pulled a strange one out on me and I could just flip at it and go, oh, yeah, that's right. There's that weird F sharp to D minor and then you bump it twice and then the walk down and, oh, yeah, you know, a little refresher right before we play it. And I did occasionally use the, the stuff and actually look down at it. But basically at this gig, I wasn't. I wasn't much relying on the book. So here's this tune, which we've been playing in the key of D. Every time we played it, key of D. I might have even had the chords written out. I think I had them as Roman numerals. I think I just had them as, you know, one, four, five, seven flat, you know, two minor. I think I did them that way. Anyway. Well, the uh, the uh, lead singer of the group, the guy that was ragging on me about the book, he wasn't really ragging on me. He was just like, I don't know why you need that book. 
Well, I know why I need that book. Uh, just, you know, take it away from me and you'll hear why I need that book. Um, and, and by the way, this would not have been the case if they were playing, you know, just a bunch of bluegrass standards, you know. Anyway, at that big performance, right in the middle of the set, he announces this song. Kid D, I got this one down pat. I totally know this song. No problem. And then he says, oh, by the way, the guy that wrote the song, and I forget who the dude was, some semi-famous singer-songwriter dude, is here. And he's going to come out and sing the song with the band. So on walks the guy, big round of applause, you know. And here's the guy that actually wrote the song. And he's got a guitar and he's got a capo on. Or he's, I, I think he just turned around and said, Key of E, Key of E. Well, we've been playing D. Everybody's been playing this thing in D. And now the guy wants it in E or F or something. I forget. But it wasn't the key that everybody knew. And I was, I was justified. Because the guy who was hassling me about my book, he looked around at me with fear in his eye and said, have you got those written down in, in like the key V? I'm like, I got them as Roman numerals. You want that? He's like, can you write them down in E real quick? So I grabbed my Sharpie out of my pocket and while they're talking and introducing the song and yakety yak. I just very quickly wrote the letter names of the chords under the Roman numerals, yanked the page of the book and slipped it down on the floor just to the right of his mic stand. And we played the song and he played it looking at my cheat sheet. Now he knew the song backwards and forwards. He just, I, I, I guess he just wasn't comfortable reading them as Roman numerals or I, I don't know. But he was flabbergasted momentarily by not having the knowledge that he needed to play it well. And I guess, you know, it would have looked pretty bad. Had they just done it in the key they were used to? No sweat, you know. Anyway, once in a while, you're vindicated. But that's the sort of thing that, you look, I took it to heart when he said multiple times, hey, I don't know why you use the book. Well, that was my goal. My goal was to lose the book. To not need the book. But I also had a goal of not playing wrong notes. And I felt like, you know, if I keep it kind of low key and if it saves, you know, a train wreck or two, it's a good thing. Especially given the fact that, you know, you guys don't ever seem to want to rehearse, you know, or actually tell me the actual stuff that we're planning to play, you know. So I felt like I was justified in it, but I was determined to learn this stuff well enough by rehearsing at home. And I was also doing my own gig recordings of what we were really playing. Anyway, this is a very long drawn out story, but um, bottom line is to me, the book was helpful to him. The book was like, you look like you don't know what you're doing up there with that book, but it on that one particular song, it did save him. I, I don't recall him actually mentioning it, or maybe he did. I don't know. He might have said thanks. So those sorts of things are good. Um, 
when we restarted Pony Express in the 90s, we were getting, you know, a lot of the guys back together and we were trying to build up some sets so we could play some gigs. So I started a book for that, basically a, you know, one page with a song, with the lyrics and the chords and what key we decided on. And then I would write the break orders, you know, who kicked it off? Fiddle player kicks it off. Then the banjo player takes first break. Just some little notes so that, and the purpose for that was to keep just, if we decided that this would be a good one for the fiddle to kick off, we don't want to get to the gig and forget and somebody look at me and say, hey, kick it off on the mandolin, you know. It was just a memory tool to go from one practice session to the next practice session and jog our memory as to what we decided last time, you know. Like, okay, this song, it's just going to start with guitar and lead vocal only, and then we're going to come in on the chorus, and then it's going to be a fiddle break. Because you'd forget that. I mean, you know, especially when you're trying to, you know, crank out four 13-song sets and work up a whole bunch of material very quickly. Having a few notes will help your rehearsals. It'll settle some arguments. You know, like, I thought we did that in C. No, it was D. You had your capo on a second fret. Got it written down right here. Oh, yeah, cool. So having those things and possibly even carrying them to a gig uh, could be helpful, especially when you're kind of new playing together. Eventually, you're all going to learn this stuff and you ought to be working without a book. I'll give you that. But I just think it's it's bad practice, and it is amateurish to park the big giant book in front of you at every gig, like like a crutch or like Linus with his blanket. You know, like I can't play if I don't have this book to hide behind. And many times, the person with the big giant book doesn't even need it. He really doesn't. Mostly, that book is full of stuff that they never do. You know. It's it's a bit of a security blanket, and I think you could do without it, probably. Or at least just whittle it down. Just, just put the stuff in the book that you actually do. Saves a whole lot of flipping through pages, and, you know, you look more professional, you know. So I do agree with that guy who said, you know, I don't know why you use a book. But I am admitting, as I always take both sides of every issue, well, not every issue, but this one, there are times when, Having some written notes can be helpful. And there are all other times, and probably all the time, where your goal should be to not have to rely upon it. Okay, so that's enough talking about, you know, crutches and training wheels. I hope you guys are enjoying these podcasts. I hope you will consider supporting the show over on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. Um... You know, I always have a backlog of plans, things I'd like to do. And I, I have a maintained mental list of ideas of things I would like to do with this show, but it just, you know, can't justify them without the proper level of support. So anyway, I hope you guys will consider that. Um, scope out these other episodes that I mentioned. I, I neglected to mention uh, episode 45, Crafting a Good Set List, since we're talking a lot about set lists. I fully you know, explore that. And then the episode 65 practicing alone episode. So thanks a bunch to everybody who has been supporting the show and also anybody that buys into my products over there. That's a, another way to support the show. And I appreciate that as always. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. 
and I will talk to you in the next edition of Grass Talk Radio. Oh, and one more thing. Uh, the closing music for today's episode. I haven't done one of these. Oh, and one more thing in quite a while. I'm like uh, Columbo. You remember the, the uh, show Columbo with Peter Falk? He always had one more. Uh, oh, yeah, one more thing. I haven't done one of those in a while. But there's a little tune that I wrote called the Sun Sundown Waltz. Just a little mandolin tune I wrote. And I really wanted to hear Mikey play it on the fiddle. And so I wrote it out in standard notation and gave it to him. And we played around with it a little bit. And I think we might have performed it once or twice. Just, just a couple of times. It's just a simple little waltz. And I often used it with my students, my mandolin students. And I would teach it to them. Just, you know, it's a fairly simple little tune. Um... And it has possibilities for embellishment. And, you know, it's just a nice little vehicle, just a little tune I could teach somebody. And when I created the, the book, the Mandolin Excursion book, 44 tunes and solos, whatever, I put in the mandolin tablature for that song. Well, I had a student one time that I was kind of using that, that material in Mandolin Excursion as lesson material. And if I found a tune that they sort of gravitated towards and liked playing, you know, we would work on that. So Sundown Waltz, I'm working on that with one of my students. And I thought, well, you know, it might be helpful if I recorded this. Or maybe they asked me, could you, could you just, you know, record that for me? And I said, when you come next week, I'll, make, I'll have made a little recording of the tune. So I did. I sat down with my little multi-track. Played the mandolin part twice through, you know, just one take. Played some guitar. I might have even stuck some bass in there. I don't remember. I do have the track here. I'm going to play you a little of that. And uh, also, I'm going to put the notation for this song. If you like the little waltz, it's a. it could be a beautiful waltz. I particularly wrote it as a fiddle waltz. But it makes a pretty good mandolin tune, too. Simple little waltz. I'm going to put the standard notation on the show notes page. So if you like the little tune, you want to learn it. It's not a difficult tune, which I love these kind of tunes that you can make them as difficult and elaborate as you want to, you know, or you can just play them real simple. That's what I did. And what I want to do, though, this is interesting to me because this tune is laid around uh, for, I don't know, 50, I probably wrote it 15 years ago. Yeah, probably. 2003, four, somewhere in there. And I've had this little recording, just this little recording of it. Well, my son, Jackson, who I've talked about so much with his orchestral arranging and fooling around, creating all these things in Sibelius and stuff. He found that tune. He found the little sheet music of the melody of Sundown Waltz. And with no help from me, nothing he arranged it and he's like listen to this so what I, what I want to go out with is a little bit of that little demo recording of me playing sundown waltz on the mandolin with some guitar backup and when that ends i just want to play you uh, what jackson took the same melody and did some other stuff with it and just sort of one of those proud papa moments but it but it illustrates how 
different minds can do different things with essentially the same basic musical starting point. And uh, I think you might find it interesting. Anyway, so here we go. Here's a little bit of Sundown Waltz. 